HD Insights podcast is brought to you by the Huntington Study Group. The Huntington Study Group is a nonprofit research organization dedicated to conducting clinical research in HD and providing critical training on HD to healthcare professionals. Funding for this podcast is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you and sponsorship grants from organizations like Teva Pharmaceuticals. Hello, and welcome to the HD Insights Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Gregory, Senior Director of Education and Communications at the Huntington Study Group. And on this episode of the podcast, we welcome Aaron Patterson to the program. Aaron is an author and public speaker from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, who tested gene positive for Huntington's disease in 2007. Shortly after, she started suffering from depression before receiving even more crushing news. After trying for quite some time, she learned that she was infertile. Despite these diagnoses, she was determined to have a family and live a joyful life. She is now a proud mom who loves to run and bike in her spare time. Erin's on a mission to positively impact other people's lives by writing and speaking about genetic disease, depression, and infertility because she shows it's possible to live a meaningful life even when faced with unexpected obstacles. Erin recently authored and published all Good Things, a memoir about genetic testing, infertility, and one woman's relentless search for happiness, which is available through Amazon. It was an absolute pleasure for me to speak with her, and you will almost certainly be touched by and hopefully find inspiration from the arc of her personal journey. So here it is, my conversation with Aaron Patterson. Well, Aaron, uh, thank you so much for joining the HD Insights podcast. It's really a pleasure to, to have you here. Um, and it was, it was nice to, to chat with you before we started. Um, so, uh, you know, just from that standpoint, for our, our listeners, um, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here today. Yeah, you have a really interesting story. Um, you know, a very, uh, a very winding path in terms of how you got to where you are now in terms of your experience with, with Huntington's disease. Um, so, so let's just start there. Um, a little bit about your background, um, you know, growing up, um, you know, and, and then how eventually it is uh, that you became aware of this whole thing uh, known as HD. Well, growing up, um, I didn't like my grandmother very much. <laughs> um, I was very young when she passed away, so I didn't know that anything was wrong with her. I just thought that that's what old people were like. I don't have very many memories of my grandmother, but I do remember her parking her car two feet away from the curb and sort of waddling across the lawn in a funny manner, and we'd go out for dinner together. I do remember as a kid that my parents fought about her a lot and I used to hide out in the back of my closet crying because I was a very sensitive child and I would get upset when my parents would fight. So that's the only, that's sort of what I grew up with. Um, I didn't know at the time that my grandmother had Huntington's disease and neither did anybody in my family because she died before the gene was discovered in the 90s. So fast forward to me being 31 years old, I just settled down in life. I had opened my own business, which uh, had been around for five years. My husband had a supervisory position in construction and we had just bought our first condo and we thought, hey, you know what? We're finally ready to settle down and have a family. So we made the announcement to my parents one morning over brunch. Hey, mom and dad, guess what? We're so excited. You're gonna be grandparents next year because we're gonna start a family now. And out of all people, I thought my mom would be ecstatic because she loved kids and she ran a daycare out of her home when we were growing up. And I thought she'd be so happy to finally have grandchildren of her own to care for. Unfortunately, our announcement wasn't met with the fanfare that we had expected. And we found out about a week later that they had suspected that my grandmother might have died from a genetic condition. We didn't even know at that point in time that it was Huntington's disease, but that set us on a quest to find out what exactly happened to my grandmother and whether or not that would affect us having children. So I made the decision to get tested for Huntington's disease 
and found out I was gene positive for the disease within a short eight months. So I found out um, like around November and then the following year in June, I found out that I was gene positive for HD. So all I had to go on were those childhood memories of my grandmother causing turmoil in my family. So the thought of getting tested for something and the idea that I might turn into somebody like her was terrifying for me. I had no other lived experience with HD. I had no positive experiences with HD. So going through the testing process was a very difficult process for me, especially since at the time I didn't tell anybody in my family that I was going through the testing process because my dad, um, we didn't even know if my dad was gene positive at that time. And I knew that making the decision to get tested was a big decision. So I didn't want to force him into getting tested for me. So since my biological clock was ticking, I felt the need to get answers for myself. So that's why we, we got tested without anybody in my family knowing. It was just my husband and a couple of my running friends who were there to support me through the process. You, you mentioned that um, your family suspected maybe that your, your grandmother had passed from a neurological disorder. Was, was there any sense of you know, that having progressed through the family history or was that just something that you know, they started to look into um, towards the end? I'm just curious as to, you know, how, you know was, there, was it something that, you know, like you mentioned, um, you didn't necessarily want your family to know. You didn't, uh, you know, you didn't want to uh, make that known to them. And one of the issues with Huntington's disease tends, you know, historically has been people not, you know, telling, um, you know, their offspring or their family members about it. Was was that the case? Or I, I'm just curious about how that came about or how they suspected it, it might have been HD. Um, so I think that the doctors suspected something when my grandmother was still alive, but they weren't quite sure. They were, At one point, I think they thought it might have been Alzheimer's. Then the word Huntington's was thrown around, but nothing conclusive ever came up when she was alive. Um, and as far as I know, we didn't know of any family history of HD. It wasn't something that was ever talked about. And I think that what happened was after she passed away, everybody kind of just forgot about it because she she had passed away there was no reason to think about it anymore and it was a long time uh, you know she passed away when i was 12 years old and then it didn't really come up again until i was 31 years old so that's almost 20 years later right mm -hmm. yeah what was that what was that initial moment like that the feeling for you um what went through your mind when you first got those results back for the the testing that you went in for um, when I was sitting in the genetic counselor's office, I felt ahead of time like I was going to get bad news. It was just a gut feeling that I had. And I know that's something that people discuss a lot, how they feel ahead of time, whether or not they think they're going to get it. And when they read off my genetic report, I just thought, crap, <laughs> that's what I thought. I just, I just felt like I knew it. And I immediately thought, what the heck am I supposed to do now? How am I supposed to go on living my life with this knowledge? So I even asked the genetics counselor that, and they said, well, you just go on living your life and most people feel better in about three months time. You know, they, they feel like they're able to move on with things. But for me, three months came and went and I still didn't feel better. Uh, and I started to think there was something wrong with me. I started to think that I must like wallowing in my own self-pity or maybe I like feeling depressed and getting attention from people, even though not a lot of people knew about it still. Um, I was in a very, very severe depression. I, I, I had thought I had experienced depression before getting my genetic test results, but I realized that was just sadness. <laughs> and now I was actually in a depression. Um, I couldn't I found it very difficult to get out of bed in the morning. I would sleep for 10 to 12 hours every night. And once I did get out of bed, I would just sit on the edge of the bed, staring at a sock on the floor that I didn't have the energy to pick up. I would manage to make my way into work, but I was too nervous to do anything. Um, fortunately, I had a very supportive business partner at the time who knew what was going on and she picked up my slack at work. 
but owning your own business and getting a genetic diagnosis was very challenging. Um, I couldn't be at home by myself anymore because as soon as I was home alone, that's when I would start ruminating and start thinking, oh my God, I'm going to get HD, I'm going to get HD. And it, it was just such shocking information. Just the, the thought I'm going to get HD took a long time to sink in. And then I started thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to turn into my mean grandmother and everybody's going to hate me. So it was a very challenging time for sure. Um, but I knew the moment I got my test results that I didn't want that to ruin the rest of my life. And I didn't want to be somebody who was a victim and just let that ruin their life. And I knew I wanted to find happiness. I just didn't know how to do it. But the important thing was that was my goal. And I would just try and take little steps every day to try and find happiness, even if just a small thing, like going to get my fifth coffee of the day <laughs> because I lived on coffee, just like treating myself to coffee was the thing that I could do to get through the day. And going out for a run with my friends was the thing I could do to get through through the day. So I just, each day I tried to add on one little bit more of happiness. And eventually over time, I began to find happiness again. Is there, looking back on it now and your decision to test, is there anything you would have done differently or would recommend to other people that, you know, are, are considering testing? I mean, is there, you know, is there, for example, more research or more, you know, legwork you would have done in advance of that? Or, you know, is, is there anything that you would have altered, um, you know, looking back on that to, you know, potentially kind of ease that level of depression that you had uh, felt? I don't know if there's anything that could ease the depression because it's pretty big news to go through, but definitely I feel like it would have been a lot better if I had more time to consider my decision because we had already started trying to conceive. And then that's when my parents told us about the possibility of Huntington's disease. So the timing on that was pretty crummy. Um, I don't know why my parents waited that long to tell us. I still don't know to this day and I don't hold a grudge over that. But if I had had a couple of years in advance to think about it, I think that might have been very helpful. Um, because for me, I was just reading stuff off the internet and just reading a list of symptoms on the internet doesn't really tell you what Huntington's disease is. You know, it says uh, cognitive impairment or emotional issues. Well, what exactly does that mean? And what does it mean to actually live with the disease? So I think my brain probably filled in a lot more scary things than were necessary. Um, so I think just having more time to consider things would have been good. And that would have given me more time to build a bigger support system around me as well. Because um, mm. as it was, I just had those three or four people who knew, and I hadn't even discussed it with my brothers. So it would have been nice to have a little bit more family support yeah. and, and to be able to approach genetic testing as a family. For sure. And, and, you know, that family support structure, how has, how did that evolve, um, you know, from the point of your diagnosis, going through the depression that you spoke of, how did that evolve into what it's become for you now? Did it, you know, did, you know, did everything improve? Were there, you know, were there some relationships that maybe got worse or did they get better? You know, what was your experience along, you know, the, those lines in terms of family support? Um, I, I feel like I went through most, most of my HD journey on my own uh, without my family support. My brothers live on the other side of the country, so they're in a different time zone, so we didn't speak very often. Um, my younger brother, after he found out that I was gene positive for HD, stopped answering my phone calls. I think that that news was just too difficult for him to deal with but I'm not 100% sure because we've never actually spoken about it. Um, that relationship is slightly better in that we speak once a year now. <laughs> um, but in the beginning, everybody had their own thoughts and feelings about the HD diagnosis. You know, my mom had her own emotions connected to me and her own guilt connected to me having the HD gene, and she was struggling through her own journey. And then I had my other thoughts and concerns that I was struggling through independently. And it was hard for us to support each other 
and and my dad eventually um, did let me know that he had gone through genetic testing, so he knew. So eventually, we all knew about each other, but we're just all going through our separate journeys at the exact same time. So that's probably another thing that would have been good to change, um, that we're not all digesting this news about each other. You know, I'm digesting news about my dad at the same time as digesting the news about myself, at the same time as thinking about my future children and whether or not I want to pass on the gene to them or the risk of passing on the gene to them. So it was a very complicated time. We've come to a better place now, but it's been over 10 years. Yeah. I, I'm curious too, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, your, your grandmother and that growing up, you didn't, you didn't necessarily like her. Um, mm -hmm. it, is that, do you think that it's because of, you know, the, the progression of HD for her and, you know, over time has, has your, have your feelings or your, your perspective about her changed as a result of, of your journey? Of course. Yeah. I've learned to forgive my grandmother for the turmoil that I felt she caused in our family, but this is my youthful childhood view of things, right? Mm -hmm. I thought it was all of her fault, but of course it wasn't all of her fault. All I knew as a kid was that my parents fought about her a lot and I would cry in the closet. So I've done a lot of work to accept my grandmother for who she was because it's really important for me to not hate her anymore because I'm going to get the same disease as her. So it feels a little bit like um, accepting myself at the same time as accepting her and forgiving her for what had happened. Let's talk about your husband. So I've, um, you know, I've listened to some other interviews and, you know, you speak so lovingly of, of the support he had, but that was one of, that was certainly one of your concerns, um, mm -hmm. right after you were diagnosed that, you know, is, is he going to stick around? Is he going to be there for me? Talk about your, the relationship with your husband and how that, I, how that grew stronger actually after your, your diagnosis. So before diagnosis and right after, of course, for a couple of years after I was terrified that he was going to leave me. Um, anytime I learned something new about Huntington's disease or anytime my dad showed another symptom, I'd be afraid to speak to my husband about it. Uh, Cause I was afraid he would go, Oh, yep, that's it. <laughs> that's going to be the thing I leave you for. That's going to be the thing that tips me over the edge. So in the beginning, I was afraid to talk about my fears with him too much for fear of overwhelming him and pushing him away. Um, but on the other hand, he was an incredible support to me. I always doubted myself and doubted myself as a person. Um, I only saw myself as HD. I didn't see myself as anything else. And I thought for sure, if anybody found out about my genetic diagnosis, they wouldn't want to be my friend anymore, or I wouldn't be able to develop any new friendships with people because I thought that I was damaged and every single night for a long time, I would cry myself to sleep in my husband's arm and, and say, are you sure you still love me? Are you sure you still love me even with HD? And he would say, yes, HD doesn't change any of that. I'm not gonna leave you. Of course, I still love you. And he repeated that over and over again for years. And thank goodness he had the patience for that. And we really had to work hard um, as all people in long-term marriages do, we've been married 20 years now. We got married in our early 20s. And it's just about being very open with each other and communicating our wants and our needs and our fears with each other. And that comes to it with HD as well, right? So I have to talk to my husband about what's scaring me and he'll help make me feel better about it. Or he's very good at having a different perspective on things especially when it comes to speaking to my daughter about Huntington's disease and her future with Huntington's disease. She um, is adopted, so she's not at risk for HD, but she's going to have a mother who's going to have HD in the future. And she sees what her grandfather is going through now. So we already have conversations with her and we try to frame things in a positive light. But my husband often has a totally different viewpoint on stuff. And I think it's really amazing that he has a completely different viewpoint that he can express to her. Yeah, that's so great to have that 
you know that openness and the those lines of communication to be able to to support each other like that now one of the you know you really were hit with a, a double whammy um like you said you were at the time of your diagnosis um also trying to start a family um yes so and i know there's a a fairly intertwined complicated story around that part of your <laughs> life so um why don't you take us down that path in terms of um you know both your your struggles with trying to start a family also you know navigating this new uh, huntington's disease journey that you know you're now faced with so the whole reason i thought that i got tested was to just to make a fully informed decision about what to do about having children and i thought all through the testing process if i have the gene then i won't have kids but then when i found out i did have the gene i made the decision to have kids anyways because i thought my life as a person with hd has value and so would the life of my child if they happen to inherit hd from me so we tried to conceive naturally for a year without any luck and then we found ourselves um, in the office of a fertility doctor to get some help and we started out with treatments that were as minimally invasive as possible at first but after a year and a half of trying all of those minimally invasive things, we still weren't pregnant. They, we had what is called undiagnosed infertility, which means they basically can't find a reason why you can't get pregnant. Every, on paper, everything looked good, um, but nothing was working. So after a year and a half of um, trying at the fertility clinic, we were faced with doing in vitro fertilization. And I knew that if we were going to the extent of doing an in vitro fertilization, then I would want to do it with uh, PGD or pregenetic testing. At the time, it was still considered very experimental. And we were the first people in our clinic to actually do PGD. And um, as part of the process of our IVF with PGD, cells from our embryos had to be sent down to Detroit. So it wasn't even available in Canada. Um, so we did our first IVF with PGD. I was unfortunately a poor responder to the drugs, which means I didn't create a lot of eggs. Uh, so we didn't have a lot of embryos. So as we were driving down to the clinic to get the embryos transferred into my womb, we got a call from the doctor with the results of our PGD. And unfortunately, all of our embryos had Huntington's, so we didn't get a chance to use any of them. To me, that felt like I didn't really get a chance. <laughs> so we made the decision to try again. We took a couple of months off and three months later, we tried again. And we had two embryos, luckily, that were HD free. And we used both of them, but unfortunately, neither of them resulted in a pregnancy. So then we were faced with thinking, okay, well, I knew after after we got the test results back that I wasn't pregnant. We had been going through or trying to get pregnant for over two and a half years at that point, and I knew that I was done. I was emotionally exhausted. Going through infertility is kind of like having a part-time job. You have to go to the clinic every morning. Uh, it opens at 6 a.m. so that people could go before starting work, and sometimes you're there for two or three hours getting a whole bunch of tests done and meeting with the doctor. Um, so we had put a lot of emotional energy into that. And Huntington's disease really complicated everything <laughs> because every month I had to make the decision again. Okay, am I still okay with the possibility of passing on the HD gene? Yes, okay, then this is how we're gonna move forward. So I was really trying to recover from my diagnosis and move on with my life, but infertility kept bringing it up again. So I felt like it really prolonged my recovery from, from my genetic diagnosis for sure. So after our second failed IVF, I knew I couldn't step foot in another fertility clinic again. And I did also knew that I still wanted to be a parent. I just didn't know how we were going to make that happen. Um, so we took a year getting second opinions from about seven different doctors. We, we lived in a big city, so there's tons of fertility doctors here. <laughs> And all of them had their own little idea of some tweak they could make and thousands of dollars you could spend, maybe it might work. 
but I knew, no, I'm not going to try that again. And we eventually decided that we are going to try to adopt. But the hiccup was we didn't know with my genetic status if we'd be allowed to adopt or not. Um, so I tried finding the answer on the internet, but it was nowhere to be found. I met with some adoption consultants. They didn't have any answers for me either. The only thing that we could do was try. And we decided to adopt privately. So in Canada and in the United States, the process is pretty similar. You have to go through parenting classes, about 27 hours of parenting classes called pride training, which is adoption specific parenting classes. And you have to have a home study done, which is uh, 10 hours of interviews with the social worker um, who comes to your home or you go to her place and they interview you over a series of 10 weeks, two hours each week um, about your life. Basically, they, they ask you every imaginable thing about your life. And a, as a part of that, you have to submit your finances, you have to get your fingerprints done and you have to submit a medical. So I knew during that intensive process, the topic of Huntington's disease would probably come up. So we decided ahead of time that we were gonna be open and honest about HD um, and not hide anything because we knew for sure it would come up in the medical anyway. Um, so we just knew that we had to talk about Huntington's disease in a very positive light. So even though Huntington's disease felt like it had devastated my life and at that time my family felt destroyed, we had to talk about Huntington's disease like everything that had happened wasn't that bad because the more dramatic effect you put on it then the social worker's gonna take it that way, right? So we just had to ed educate her in a positive way about Huntington's disease. And to get through those interviews, we did discuss ahead of time what questions we thought we might be asked and how we wanted to answer them. I think that's so, a really, you know, that's a really good point that you make, um, not only educating the social worker that you're um, speaking with for the adoption process, but, you know, educating in a, you know, the, the positive aspect of Huntington's disease and that, yes, I mean, there's a, there is a lot of terrible news around it and, and what, you know, it will do eventually. But at the same time, you know, you can, you know, people can still be fully abled, you know, able to function, able to live, you know, their lives. Um, you, you don't, yeah, I, I mean, I just, I, I really, uh, I'm really glad that you, you mentioned it and, and put it that way. I think that's a really um, interesting takeaway for, you know, for listeners, for people that are, are dealing with that or trying to explain it um, when they have to, to others. Right. And it's, a, it's the same way we approach explaining things to my daughter as well. We do let her see the struggles. And sometimes I cry in front of her because being a caregiver is hard. But then we also reframe it for her. Yep. Um, your grandpa's having trouble with these things. But the good thing is he could still do all of these other things. You know. Mm -hmm. So my dad has late onset HD. Um, he's 78 now and he was riding a bicycle last year. So that's pretty amazing. This year he's having a little bit more trouble walking, but my gosh, he's still walking with a walker. So that's pretty amazing. Yeah. And uh, we talked to my daughter about how you have to speak to him, right? You have to give him some time to answer. So then we talk a little bit slower and we don't jump in right away with an answer. So I know that teaching her all those things about how to deal with her, her grandfather is also teaching her how she's going to have to deal with me one day. So I definitely want there to be some positives in there yeah, <laughs> because absolutely. I don't want that to be something that she's going to dread and, and be fearful of. Absolutely. I, I want her to just think this is a part of life. Everybody gets old and everybody has something they have to deal with when they're older. How old was your daughter when the when you completed the adoption process? So she, we met her when she was five days old, and we brought her home when she was ten days old. So we adopted privately, which meant that we had to be chosen by the birth parents to be the parents of our daughter. Um, our adoption wasn't finalized until she was eleven months old. 
So in the first six months, the social worker would come by for visits and write up a report. And then that report got sent into the government and then it went through the court system. So really in that first year, I was terrified that they were gonna take her away from us. I thought somebody would see my genetic status on the paperwork and say, no, these people aren't fit to adopt. And friends of mine would say, well, what are the chances? You're such a great couple. They're, they're not gonna take your baby away from you. And I would say, well, to them, I'm just a piece of paper. They've never met me. So, you know, even if it was just a 1% chance, that's pretty scary. Not that it was a 1% chance, but I'm just saying, even if the chance was low, nobody would wanna take that risk with their own child, right? Right, you don't know and, until you know for sure that it's, you know, that's not gonna happen, right? Yeah. Um, how, so with, with the work that you do with your daughter to, you know, help her, help educate her and, and prepare her, you know, with, with your father, with, you know, uh, potentially her future, you know, working with you, how is, how has she reacted or responded to those? Is, you know, does she, does she pick it up pretty quickly? Is she, have you found, you know, uh, you know, any challenges there that, you know, other people would benefit from hearing about? I, I guess the biggest challenge with my daughter is she's a talker <laughs> and she really <laughs> likes to talk so much that in a normal conversation, nobody else gets a chance to speak half the time. So getting her to slow down to speak to my dad is a very big challenge for her. Um, one story I thought I would share is that um, over the last three years, I've become an HD advocate and I've been writing a lot of stories online and I've been writing a book and my daughter has been involved in that journey and she knew that I was writing a book and she would know that I would go and speak at a conference and I would talk about how we adopted her and things like that. Um, but all this time I was so afraid of telling her about my gene status and I was avoiding it even though I knew okay eventually I have to tell her and then one day I walked into the kitchen and she came up to me and just like looked right up to me with these big eyes <laughs> and said, mom, is there anybody else in our family who has Huntington's disease? And I said, oh, well, why do you ask? And she said, I just want to know, is there anybody else in our family who has Huntington's disease? And she repeated it with her eyes getting wider, right? And I thought to myself, okay, well, this is the moment I have to tell her about myself. So then I did. And um it just felt very momentous to me. I thought, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is actually happening. And then she just said, oh, okay. <laughs> and I said, well, why do you ask? How come you ask? And she's like, well, I just figured you're writing about it and talking about it all of the time. I just figured it out. <laughs> right. So she had been picking up on it all along anyways. Aren't, kids are the best, I, I think, sometimes. There's yeah. you know, that that age, that innocence, and, and the fact that... Uh, you know, she's just going to, she's just going to move on and, and help, help you any way she can. And she is just totally accepting of the situation and didn't think it was a big deal at all. So, and, and a part of that's about how we deal with grandpa. We don't act like it's a huge big deal, right? It is, it's just life. So, so I guess that's good that it came out that way. <laughs> We'll return to the interview on the HD Insights podcast in a moment. We hope that you're enjoying this episode. As a nonprofit organization, the Huntington Study Group relies on the generous support from the community and listeners like you to continue bringing you in-depth content on HD, like this podcast series. If you like what you're hearing and are interested in supporting HD Insights through a grant or donation, please contact us through our email address, info at hsglimited.org, or by calling toll-free at 1-800-487-7671. We greatly appreciate your support. And now, back to our episode. We've talked a lot about the challenges um, that you faced with, you know, depression, infertility, um, you know, family history, the diagnosis, all that. I want to talk about the, you know, you taught, you called them the, the daily steps, the, the things mm -hmm. that got you out of that, um, and, and the amazing accomplishments you've had since. Um, 
I want to I want to get to a few of those, but you, you mentioned the book that you're writing, yes. um, that you're working on now. You've you've written a number of pieces, uh, I believe, in the past, um, but uh, you just had a uh, you just had a book get published as well. Um, you know, t- talk yeah. about that actually, and, and what it's about, and what prompted you? What, how did you go about deciding that you wanted to write a book? Well, so the book just came out two months ago, um, and for me, getting my genetic diagnosis felt so important, and it really did change my life. And I would say that it did change my life for the better because I have a better appreciation of life and I live completely differently. And on the outside, I might look the same to everybody else, but mentally my, my mindset is a lot different than it used to be. I don't focus on things that aren't important anymore. Um, so I just feel like I appreciate my life more and I appreciate what I have in the situation that I'm in. And, um, I find I have a purpose in my life and I want to make a difference, which wasn't there before my HD diagnosis. So those are the good things that came of it. I wanted to write a book because I felt like this was such a life-changing thing to me that it needed to be written down. And it was, it was a very heavy thing. Those were the worst five and a half years of my life. Um, And it felt important to document it, but mostly I wanted other people to be able to, read the book and feel a connection to what I've written because for me reading really got me through it's one of those daily steps that I took reading other people's books even if I read an entire book and there was just one point I connected with in that book that could have been the thing that helped me get through to the next day right so I knew that a lot of people in the HD community and the infertility community are afraid to speak about those things so I felt that speaking about those things and putting a voice to those things would be helpful to other people by saying, you know, in my book, I don't gloss over the horrible depression I felt. I have a couple of chapters that maybe are a little bit harder to read because I wanted to get into the nitty gritty of how bad it was because I felt it was important for people to know, yep, it did get this bad, but I was able to make it through. And I think you'll be able to make it through as well. So that's the main reason I wrote the book for sure. Um, I have done a lot of writing as well in the past three years as guest blog posts. I've had over 25 stories about Huntington's disease published online. Um, And those were just baby steps for me before the book came out (laughs) because it's very scary to put that out into the world. So I would just write a blog post and get that accepted. And then once nobody rejected me (laughs) from the first blog post coming out, because at that time, a lot of people in my life still didn't know about my genetic diagnosis. And that was in 2018. So it wasn't very long ago. Mm -hmm. So the first time I had a blog post out and I posted on Facebook, that was kind of like coming out from my secret. Um, So I've just written little blog posts here and there leading up to the release of the book. What was the writing process for the book like for you? You know, what? how involved is that? How long, you know, how long did it take? Um, if you, you know, that when I'm just writing, you know, even technical documentation, even I get writer's block, do you, you know, how, how do you, do you get that? Do you, how do you fight through that? I definitely got writer's block and it was usually when I was afraid of what I was writing about. <laughs> so it might've been something I didn't want to face or a, a decision I made and I didn't understand the reason behind it. And, you know, so there's one chapter of my book that I have 30 drafts of because it took me that long writing it out over and over again to finally understand why I did what I did. Um, it, I spent four years writing the book. Um, after Every night after my daughter went to bed, I would sit at the computer for two or three hours. And for me, the process was very intense because I knew I wanted to get very deep and emotional and let people know about the nitty gritty details. So I would actually sit there and imagine myself back in that moment and then just write everything in the present tense as if it was happening that day. And then I would go through and edit it over and over and over again until it made sense to the reader because the first draft that comes out is just random thoughts all over the place. And then you have to organize it so that it makes sense. So I think I spent like 657 hours on the first draft of my book. Uh, Yeah, but but 
it was a very intense process and luckily I had an amazing writing coach that I would connect in with every week and I would just talk to her about what I was writing and she would give me encouragement and say yeah that's great you should you should write about that yes it's okay keep going keep going because at the time I was still keeping my status a secret and my family didn't even really talk to me about my status and nobody wanted to talk about HD in my family still. My dad hadn't had any symptoms at the time, um, but I still had emotions about my future with HD. You know, I know it's called the in-between years between when you get diagnosed and when you're symptomatic. So there are a lot of mental games or not games. I have to talk to myself mentally a lot to get to get through some things, right? Because it's scary knowing that that is in your future. So you have to learn to live in a different way to compartmentalize those feelings sometimes and set them aside so that you can enjoy the moment. Yeah, I was gonna say, and you know, uh, when it comes to compartmentalizing, it, it feels like, you know, you've been extremely effective at doing that, you know, through the years, um, you know, going to the fertility clinic is you know, one set of emotions that you have to handle versus, you know, everything else that's, that's going on with family or, you know, with how you're thinking, um, you know, about your own health. Um, there's an, you've, you've done a number of other things too. Like, I, you know, I, I, you know, saw that, uh, you know, you, you started your own business. Um, you're into a number of, um, uh, you know, athletic type of events talk a little bit about other things that you know you like to do as as a family now that you you know that help um kind of give you you know more energy uh, and more motivation to get through you know uh, you know the days well for us in our family sports has always been a huge big thing i've always been very athletic i was a big runner before i had a kid i was doing marathons but once you have a kid you don't have time for all that training anymore you know, because it would take like six hours on a Sunday of training. So I don't want to take that way, time away from my family, but I still have been training for half marathons, uh, which isn't quite as intense. Um, because of COVID, I haven't done much running, but um, as a family, we're always very active. Right now, we're taking rock climbing, bouldering classes together. Oh, wow. <laughs> so my daughter is huge into bouldering, which Basically, bouldering is rock climbing without a harness, which sounds kind of crazy, but you're only going up on a wall that's maybe 12 feet high, and there's big two-foot thick mats below you in case you fall. Um, <laughs> so it's just really neat to see my daughter scrambling up the wall, and it's like a, a puzzle. You have to figure out how to get up the wall because you can't just reach everything. You have to move your body in a certain way so that you could get to the next hold. So since I was... Um, watching her do that, I thought, well, I might as well try it out too. So we go every Saturday as a family to do that. And my husband and I have been playing, we took up volleyball again recently. Um, but in the past, we, we met playing baseball. So we were just put on the same baseball team. That's how we met. So we've always done that or gone to the gym or running. So just being outside in nature and enjoying life and doing something that allows you to live in the moment is really great. And I feel like sports are really good for allowing you to live in the moment because when you're playing a sport, you're not thinking about anything else. Yeah. Now, I didn't hear any uh, big winter sports mentioned in there. Now, I know you're from Toronto. <laughs> There's no, no hockey, yeah. curling involved anywhere? No, I mean, we used to go snowboarding, but I don't know. I, the last time I went snowboarding, I fell and flipped head over foot and like, oh, geez sprained a bunch of muscles on one side of my body and thought, yeah, I'm done with that for now. <laughs> uh, so when we do go skiing, it's about a two hour drive away because Toronto doesn't get as much snow as up north. Um, so we do go skiing and my husband and daughter will go and I'll, I'll read a book by the fireplace. That's nice. how I enjoy it now. <laughs> what other what other plans do you have coming up? Uh, are you, you know, are, are you considering, you know, additional books, more writing? Do you have any specific things that you want to do or, you know, want to accomplish in, you know, say the next yep. five years or so? I have lots of goals. <laughs> so my daughter and I are going to write a book together. We already have a draft of what we want it to be about. Um, and then I've just last week started on book two, which is going to focus more on being a caregiver and 
the emotions surrounding that. And um, I recently launched my own company, which is a publishing company. Um, and it's called Lemonade Press. And it's focused on um, producing, um, empowering anthologies for the medical community. So I'm going to have a book about HD and I'll have stories from 15 to 20 different people from different perspectives in the HD community. So maybe there'll be a genetic counselor, a neurologist, somebody um, who's caring for somebody like a caregiver, somebody who's in the in-between years, somebody who hasn't got tested and is trying to make the decision to get tested. So all just different perspectives surrounding HD. And then uh, another book on uh, rare disease to support the rare disease community. And then uh, one called Path Pathways to Parenthood. So those are all issues that are close to my heart. So I'm starting with those three anthologies and then eventually I could expand out into different diseases. But the idea is I, I felt um, the catharsis of writing my story and the release that comes with putting your story out into the world and not living with a secret anymore. And I want to be able to help other people express their emotions and their fears and their joys and happinesses in life. So that's why I set up the publishing company. So I'm going to start recruiting people for the first book in the new year. That's fantastic. And it's such a, you know, there's such a big need um, for this, especially in, you know, a, a rare disease like Huntington's. Um, you know, it's, you know, it's not a huge population, but it's a very deserving population to, to have these types of resources. I'm, just, I'm curious, you know, um, what, what types of connections have you made into the, the HD community or feedback that you've gotten from um, folks that, you know, uh, have either have the disease or serve as caregivers and, and had a chance to, um, you know, read your work? Well, it came out only just very recently. So I, I know I've been selling copies and I do have some reviews on Amazon. Um, I haven't specifically heard from people in the HD community quite yet. It takes time for people to get the book and read the book and it's only mm -hmm. been two months. So it, it hasn't really been that much time yet, but I, I must say through, I did, I did a lot of guest blogging and I had people reaching out to me all of the time through my guest blog posts. And a lot of times there would be a certain article and somebody would say, yeah, I feel exactly that way thank you so much for putting it on paper and making me feel like I wasn't the only one. Or other people who would say, oh, thank you so much for putting that perspective out there. Now I know how my daughter is feeling about infertility. Or now I know how my son is coping with his wife who's gene positive. So I've had a lot of response from the blogging. So I have no doubt that I'll get response from the book as well. well I, I think that's what memoirs do. They, yeah. they put a story out there and they say, this is how I feel. And it's okay to feel that way. Yeah, and you know, hopefully, you know, this this podcast and our listeners will help. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll uh, give them a, another avenue to that. Where, where can um, people learn more about you? And then also, where can they go if they want to get a copy of the book? Yep. So I do have a website. It's uh, AaronPatterson.com, and my last name is Patterson with one T. <laughs> and the book is currently on sale on Amazon worldwide. And I will be expanding the distribution in the new year. So it'll be available in more places in the new year. But for now, it's just on Amazon. And it's called All Good Things, a memoir about one woman's relentless search for happiness. Excellent. And we'll, I'll put a link for our podcast listeners in the description so they can get to both uh, your website um, and a, a link to the, the book on Amazon. Um, Aaron, I, I really enjoyed speaking with you today, and I appreciate you joining the podcast. Is, it, anything else that you know we didn't touch on that you want to mention to to folks, or um, any any final piece of advice for people that may be going through some of the similar situations that you have? I, I think that the most important thing that I always try to say is. Um, Deciding whether or not to have kids when you have a genetic disease in your family can be a very difficult decision and you can feel like you want to control everything um, because your life sometimes when you get a genetic test result does feel out of control. Um, so I think the message that I would have for people is really there is no wrong way to create your family and everyone's situation is different. 
um, and you have to make the decision that's right for you and your partner. And a lot of times you might make a decision and then a couple of years later, you might change your mind and that's okay. You just have to make the best decision you can with the information you have available to you at the time. But it, it, it can be difficult for sure. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate it again. And Aaron, thanks. Thank you so much for, for being a guest on this episode. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Erin Patterson. I really appreciated her reaching out and wanting to share her journey with you. Erin's stories have appeared on over a dozen sites, including Kevin MD, The Mighty, and Huntington's Disease News, among others. But the best way to learn about Erin and get links to all those publications is by visiting her website, which is erinpatterson.com. That's E-R-I-N. P-A-T-E-R-S-O-N.com. If you're interested in purchasing a hard copy or digital version of her book, it's available on Amazon. That title again is All Good Things, a memoir about genetic testing, infertility, and one woman's relentless search for happiness. There's a web link for both in the podcast episode description. Thanks again for listening and being a part of the HD Insights podcast. Until next time, stay safe, be well, and take care of one another. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the HD Insights Podcast. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to make sure you automatically get the latest episodes to your device. Please rate and review this podcast with your feedback so we can continue providing the best possible content. If you are interested in providing financial support for the work needed to produce this content, you can do so by becoming an ongoing sponsor or through a tax-deductible donation. To do so, please email us at info at hsglimited.org. That's I-N-F-O at hsglimited.org or by calling our toll-free number at 1-800-487-7671. Thank you for joining us on the HD Insights Podcast from the Huntington Study Group.